0: Story Two of Kafer Kangaroo Klondike Tales of the Goldfields by Thaddeus William Henry Levitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Two The Black Cat of Klondike. In the winter of eighteen ninety six, I was attending the Osgood Hall Law School, Toronto, and drawing wills, deeds, and mortgages for a firm of barristers on a salary of five dollars per week. I was young and ambitious, and dreamed that it was only a question of time when I should become, if not a judge, at least a leading barrister. At a conversat given by the Law Society I met my fate and fell in love with Edith Hothaway. The passion was reciprocated, and a few weeks later we were engaged. When the marriage would take place was delightfully nebulous, as was my legal status. We had decided that it was to be, and that was all sufficient. One caution we exercised, and but one. It was, we kept the engagement a secret. Edith's father was a broker living in a fine residence on fashionable St. George Street, and reputed to be in very comfortable circumstances possibly he might object to the betrothal of his only child to an impecunious law student who had only passed his first exam and was by no means certain of passing the next one so we drifted pleasantly with the tide and cherished our secret with infinite satisfaction one saturday afternoon i received a hurried note from edith asking me to call that evening instinctively i felt that our mutual happiness was threatened I was busy engrossing a mortgage at the time, and unconsciously I made all the sums payable to Edith Hawthaway instead of Isaac Lazarus. I found Edith in tears. We must part, she cried. All is over. No, no, I said, it cannot be. I was so happy, and now the cruelty of fate. Calm yourself and tell me all. We shall never part, come what may. We are ruined, she sobbed my father my poor father risked everything in chicago and he has lost home money everything must go and yet there will remain a debt of honor for twenty thousand dollars this money was entrusted to him by a widow it was her all the shock was more than he could bear he has had a paralytic stroke and the doctors say he will never recover he may live for years but will be helpless mother as you know is an invalid and she paused and wiped away her tears how can i tell you but i must only yesterday fred reingold asked me to be his wife he knows all and yet he declares that if i will consent the old home shall be saved and the debt of honor paid what am i to do in one year we shall be turned into the street mother has a few hundred dollars we can subsist upon it for a year by discharging all the servants and living with the greatest economy then will come the poor house for father and mother and for me god only knows some way will open i murmured what way i was silent i have made up my mind edith said shuddering there is but one way for escape we must bury our love i must be sacrificed no i protested you do not you cannot love me edith turned deadly pale and gave me one look the cruel words died on my lips then we sat and brooded edith sprang to her feet and exclaimed i have it the one chance there was a ring in her voice from which hope was bred tell me name it i cried you will have to consent she said slowly as if weighing every word "'Then I consent.' "'It is an inspiration,' she continued. "'I will tell Fred Reingold that I will marry him one year from tomorrow, provided the twenty thousand dollars is not paid by that time. You will have one year in which to make a fortune.' "'But will he consent to such terms?' "'Yes, if he loves me.' "'My hope sank to zero, then froze.' I have not finished," Edith said. She had divined my thoughts. They have found great gold-fields in the Yukon. It is a frightful country on the confines of Alaska. You must go there and find a fortune and be back in time." But how?" I asked. That shall be a secret until you come back. I will see Fred Rheingold tomorrow, and tomorrow night you shall know your fate. The following evening she met me at the door and smiled. It is all arranged, she said. The year has been granted. You are to go. When? Tomorrow morning on the first train. But I never finished the sentence. Every hour means success or failure, Edith exclaimed reproachfully. How that evening fled away we only realized. When I kissed her good-bye, she slipped three crisp $100 bills into my hand, and then she whispered, remember this is st patrick's day march the seventeenth and the time will expire at twelve o'clock at night one year from today, i must give you something to bring you good luck what shall it be that which you love the best next to me she glanced around the room at her feet on a white rug lay a small black kitten there he is she said pointing to the kitten my second love I picked the kitten up, inspired by a sudden impulse. He shall keep me company. I put him in my coat pocket, and half an hour later I was packing my scanty wardrobe. Six days later I was standing on the quay at Vancouver, making inquiries for transportation to the Yukon goldfields. The man to whom I addressed the question was a rough, burly fellow, none too clean, with a heavy beard covering his face up to his eyes. His answer was, "'What are you going to the Yukon for?' "'To mine gold.' (laughs) "'Ah, Jim,' to another man who was loading some packages into a yawl, "'Jim, come here. Do you see this spindle?' Pointing to me. Here's a new chum who wants to go to the Yukon and hunt for gold. (laughs) Look at him. See them legs and hands? (laughs) Only another tenderfoot gone mad was Jim's reply as he walked away. "'I'm going to the Yukon.' I said decidedly. Right, you are, my boy. You may start, but you'll never come back. I've seen plenty of new chums on Bendigo and Yakandata. They always talk big on the go-in and cry on the come-out. What's that you've got in your pocket? A kitten. Is the kitten on the rush, too? He goes with me. Bless my eyes, Jim, this Slim has got a kitten going with him to the Klondike no fear of them ever getting there jim responded boy take my advice and go home to your mother the man said in a kind tone to be called a boy brought tears of vexation to my eyes i turned to walk away hold on you are determined to go yes have you money to pay for your passage and an outfit certainly it will cost a hundred and fifty i have it "'Jim, the new chum, has the dust. Shall we take him? He will bring the party up to an even dozen, and reduce the expenses.' "'Your captain, do as you please. Anyway, the tenderfoot and the cat don't weigh more a puffball,' Jim answered. "'My name is Simeon, Simeon of Ballarat and Bendigo and Fiery Creek. This way sharp, if you mean business. See that schooner over there? We sail at four this afternoon.' For an hour we were busy securing my outfit and provisions. When all were on board we hoisted sail and were off. I had only fifty dollars left, and the kitten. The men were all experienced miners, some from Australia, the others from California, Nevada, and Colorado. When I took the kitten out of my pocket and fed him there was a roar of laughter and a fusillade of remarks. They named the kitten Klondike, and ere we reached Daya he had become a universal pet and the mascot of the party. It would have made Edith's heart glad to have seen the miners fondling Klondike. At Daya we unloaded our supplies and hired the Indians to pack them over Chilcot Pass. At Lake Linderman a boat was built in which we floated down the Yukon. I could only make myself useful as cook, being totally unfitted for the hard work. Simeon counseled that we should not descend to Dawson City, but turn off and ascend a tributary at a point estimated to be from 100 to 150 miles from the city. The object aimed at was to discover a new field and locate the best claims. His advice was taken. We made our way up the creek until our progress was stopped by a series of rapids. There we pitched our tents. I was left in charge of the camp, while prospecting parties went out in every direction. Gold was found in the beds of most of the streams, but not in paying quantities. Then the boat was hauled up the rapids with a rope we were to make a further advance into the interior that night the boat broke loose was swept over the rapids and totally destroyed two of the miners went down to the yukon to ascertain if they could get some boat which was descending the river to transport our supplies to dawson city they failed but brought back the news of the wonderful strike made on the el dorado instantly all was confusion the men became mad the mines were one hundred miles away Packs were made up the following morning, a cache was built in which to store the provisions, and in twenty-four hours a start was made. The men each carried one hundred pounds of provisions in addition to a pick and shovel. Simeon assisted to make up my pack of fifty pounds. The heat during the middle of the day was intense, the air filled with insect pests. The route ran over mountains, through bogs, across streams in places the moss was two feet in depth with my load i plunged and fell and ran for the men marched at a rapid pace not ten miles had been covered when i fell exhausted not even for the coveted fortune for edith could i have gone another mile i was at the rear of the line and would have been left unheeded but for the watchful care of simeon who came back and sat down by me You can never go through, he said. I knew that it was madness for you to try. You have done much better than I thought you would. Miners on a rush would leave their best friends to perish. I have been through it all before. I know what it means. If you would save your life, go back to the cache. There is plenty of provisions. You cannot starve. Go to work and build a hut. Dig a hole into the hillside so that the back and most of the sides will be of earth finish it with small logs, put on a roof of poles, cover them with moss, then with a layer of earth, then more moss and more earth. Make it thick. About a foot distant from the walls of the hut, build another row of logs and fill the space between with moss, taking care to pack it tightly, then plaster the cracks with mud. Be certain and have a big fireplace at the rear. Make it of stone and the chimney of green logs standing on in when you have these things done you will be safe but not till then i promise that i will come back for you but it may not be until spring here is my hand and john simeon never breaks his word cheer up we will probably have to return for provisions in a few weeks then you shall go through even if i have to carry you on my back he gave me a hearty handshake and turned and was gone i sank back on the moss and cried with a bitterness which i shall never feel again then a great fear came upon me for a moment i believe my heart ceased to beat could i find my way back every other question vanished i struggled to my feet and turned back with an energy born of despair Every few minutes I stopped and examined the footmarks. The sun had gone down, but the night only lasts in that latitude, in summer, for one brief hour. I was without a watch, and could only guess the time. At last I could proceed no further. I threw off my pack and released Kondike from the little wicker cage I had made to carry him in, and in ten minutes I was fast asleep. When I awoke the sun was up but how long I slept I never knew. I built a fire, ate a hearty breakfast, and started. In half an hour I came to a point where two trails crossed, which to take I did not know. I went forward on one, then turned back, took the other, and again turned back. I was lost. Cold beads of sweat stood out on my body, my brain beat like a trip-hammer. As I stood thus at the parting of the ways my eye caught sight of a fluff of cotton wool on a branch not five yards' distance. I had lined Klondike's basket with the material before leaving the camp. "'Saved by Klondike!' I cried. So bewildered was I that I should have passed the cache had it not have been for the cat. He began to mew and cry to get out of his basket. "'Oh, here we are at last!' I cried for four weeks i labored at the hut a miner would have built it in four days after three weeks i began to look for the return of my companions but at the end of six weeks i abandoned all hope the cold gradually increased i made everything tight and snug then i determined to prospect the nearby creeks for gold i found gold on every side but my best work did not exceed five dollars in a day klondike was my constant companion he had grown strong and agile and roamed about the camp at times going into the forest for hours the cold came down over the mountains and drove me into the hut i only ventured out to cut my supply of wood i fell into a despondent mood but for klondike i believe i should have gone mad with infinite patience i taught him a variety of tricks and there were times when I talked to him of Edith and the happy days when he had nestled in her arms. In such hours I imagined I saw her spirit looking out of his eyes and bidding me be of good cheer. At night he crept into the fur-lined bag in which I slept, and comforted me in the solitude with his purr. In January I noticed that every afternoon he wished to leave the cabin and remain outside for nearly an hour. As this continued day after day my curiosity was at last aroused and I determined to watch him, which I did the following day. Leaving the hut he made his way diagonally up the hillside and then disappeared. I resolved to ascertain the attraction. I struggled into the snow which was piled twenty feet deep and sank to my waist. Then I took a shovel and commenced to dig. My progress was exceedingly slow, as I had to cut the snow down several feet before it would support me. Twenty feet per day was the best progress I could make. Klondike evidently believed that I was constructing the road for his convenience, for when he daily returned from his mysterious visit he stopped and rubbed himself against my leg as if to encourage me in my good work. On the fourth day I had reached a point where I could see the hole in the snow in which he disappeared. It was on the top of a ledge of rock some ten feet wide. Tomorrow, I said, I shall know the reason. That night I constructed a short ladder with which to surmount the difficulty. The following day I placed it against the ledge and climbed up. The crumbling snow running down the bank prevented me seeing what was before me. I brushed the snow away and looked in. At my very face was a skeleton hand holding a small black object in its bony fingers. I screamed with terror. The latter lost its balance. The next instant I was twenty feet below, on my back, in the snow. I ran to the hut and actually barred the door. So great was my fright. What could it mean? I had read of demons appearing in the guise of black cats a thousand grotesque fancies danced through my brain then i called klondike he was at my feet he could not possibly be in the skeleton hand and also klondike at the same time yet even that i imagined might be possible you must bear in mind that for months i had lived isolated from human companionship that my brain had become warped and my thoughts abnormal. Was the skeleton hand a warning? Should I abandon the quest and leave a mystery unsolved? Perhaps it was a portend of my fate. Thus I reasoned and surmised, conjured, and imagined. My one consolation was that Klondike had crept into his accustomed place, and was apparently sleeping the sleep of innocence, unmindful of the skeleton hand. When the sun came up over the mountains the next day my courage returned. I determined to probe the affair to the bottom. To prove that there was nothing supernatural about the cat I took Klondike in my arms and made my way to the top of the ladder. The hand was there, and the cat was there. He sprang from me and entered the opening, coming out again with a bone in its mouth, the forearm of a man. ONLY THE LAST RESTING PLACE OF SOME POOR MINER WHO HAS DIED IN THE WILDERNESS, WAS MY COMMENT. THEN, FOR THE FIRST, I NOTICED THAT THE OBJECT IN THE GRASP OF THE SKELETON HAND WAS A SMALL BOOK. I REACHED OUT AND TRIED TO REMOVE IT FROM THE BONY FINGERS. THEY HELD IT IN A DEATH-GRIP, AND I WAS COMPELLED TO PICK UP THE HAND WHICH I CARRIED TO MY CABIN. I PRIED open THE FINGERS AND OPENED THE BOOK. The fly-leaf was closely written over in a language which I was unable to read. The book, printed in a fine small black type, was equally unreadable. From the chapters, and for other reasons, I decided that it was a copy of the New Testament. I carefully wiped it and laid it away on a shelf. To-morrow, I said, I will close the opening, the stranger's bones shall rest in peace. The next day, provided with pick and shovel, I climbed the ledge and carefully removed the snow. Then I knelt down and looked in. The cavern was some three feet in height and eight in length. The small bones were strewn about, but the trunk remained prone upon the center of the cavern. Suddenly something soft touched me on the face. I sprang back, lost my balance, and for the second time found myself on my back in the trench below. I scrambled to my feet and ran for the hut. Then I stopped and turned. Klondike was sitting complacently on the top of the ladder. "'Now I will be a man,' I said, and I walked back heartily ashamed of myself. I took my tormentor to the hut, fastened him in, and returned. I resolved to replace all of the scattered bones and seal up the mouth of the cave. To do so I was compelled to crawl inside in my task i chanced to move the trunk the sun shot a beam of light within and reflected a dull yellow glitter there could be no mistake it was gold then i paused should i take it or bury it with the bones it had been his in life why not in death if simeon did not return i too would be found some day my bones bleaching beside my handful of yellow dust no i would leave it with its rightful owner carefully i gathered the bones they were sacred to the memory of the unknown edith's love hope and avarice all were but memories as long past as if ages had gone by then it came upon me that a trust had been committed to my charge the dying man had left a message a sacred injunction written in god's book The handful of gold was to be sent to some loved one. Instantly all my sympathies were aroused. I had something to live for, to work for. I felt like a new man. I went back to the hut and brought with me a small tin dish in which to gather the last grain. I picked up the nuggets one by one. So intent was I that it was not until the pannikin was half full that I noticed that the supply was by no means exhausted. I went for another and larger dish, and another and another, and still more remained. Night came on, and I was compelled to relinquish my task. The cabin had been transformed into a treasure-house. A demon whispered in my ear, "You are rich. Edith and love and happiness are before you. Fool, you have but to reach out your hand and take the gold. Dead men tell no tales. A violent trembling seized upon me my resolution wavered. Then my eye rested upon the little black book, and a great calm fell upon me. No, I said, it is not mine. I will not be a thief. From that moment I was firm, and I never doubted but that Providence would rescue me from the Yukon. When I had removed all the treasure, I closed the mouth of the cave. Then I fashioned a rude cross, and planted it firmly in the ground to mark the burial place. My next step was to make forty small bags out of heavy cloth, into which I poured the gold, the bags I buried in the hut beneath my bed. The possession of the treasure brought a new fear, that of robbers, yet so far as I knew there was not a man within one hundred miles of me. I frequently awoke in the night and listened intently, believing that I heard footsteps. One night I suddenly sprang to my feet At the very door were snarling and fighting dogs, then followed a thump on the side of the hut. "'Hello! Hello! Are you there?' came in a hoarse voice. "'Who are you?' I asked. "'Open the door, new chum.' It was Simeon. I gave a shout, rushed out, and fairly hugged him with joy, and Jim, too, who was unharnessing the dogs. "'And here Klondike's grown as big as a tiger,' Simeon cried, picking up the cat. "'Have you any grub?' "'Plenty. "'Boil the billy and make tea. "'Is any of the brandy left?' Well, "'I never touched it. "'The best news yet. "'Knock the neck off a bottle, Jim. "'Brandy.' "'Jim was in the hut in an instant. "'After justice had been more than done to the meal, "'Simeon, after looking around, said, "'Well done for a boy. "'Had a long wait, eh? Huh? "'I always thought you would come.' hear that jim no one doubts the old man's word that's better than gold i would have been back in a month but we got word from a party who came down from this section that you had left and that the cash had been robbed it must have been another camp had many visitors looking for food and stealing what you did not give i have not seen a man since we parted in the woods good heavens why hundreds and hundreds have gone down the river "'And you did not know enough to make for the big stream, get taken on board, and find yourself in Dawson City in two days?' "'No.' "'I told you, Jim, that being a new chum he'd sit down as long as the grub held out.' "'Did you mine any gold?' "'A little.' "'Show it.' I handed him the buckskin bag which held the gold I had mined. Twenty ounces, enough to take you home.' "'How did you succeed?' I asked. "'Struck it rich.' took out $25,000 worth, Jim 20000 and the rest of the party about the same, and we have only scratched over our claims. The dust is down at the city.' "'When shall we make a start?' I asked. "'In the morning.' Then we turned in for sleep. At an early hour Jim was busy loading the sleds with supplies. "'I'm blessed if you have eaten as much as a canary bird,' he remarked to me. "'The boys will have to run up and bring down the rest.' I had purposely said nothing of my wonderful experience, waiting until I could tell Simeon privately, which I did, showing him the skeleton hand and the black book in confirmation. I don't know where you picked up these things, he said, but one thing is certain, you are off your chump. But I have the gold. Where? Buried here. Take the pick and dig it up. What do you say to that? I asked, as I pulled out a bag, and that, and that, and that. Jim, we are a fine lot of duffers. Come in. This new chum and the cat, mind you, the cat, have beaten every man on the bonanza and El Dorado. Jim came in and stared. He could not speak. Then he whispered, how many has he got? Only forty bags. But the gold is not mine, I said. Not yours. Then whose is it? The dead man's and you will not keep it? No, if the book contains a will. And you are a lawyer's clerk?" I could not keep it, I repeated firmly. Simeon turned me around and around, and then said, I believe you. If you live, you will make a man. You have got the timber in you. Shake. The gold was carried out and loaded on a sled, while I put Klondike in a bag we reached dawson city and after some weeks delay secured a steamer for st michael's from that point we sailed to vancouver at the latter place i ascertained that the value of the find was one hundred and ninety five thousand dollars the dust was deposited in the bank of montreal then simeon and i went in quest of a man who could read the writing in the black book at last an officer from a russian man-of-war was found He translated the message. Here is the translation. My name is Vosper Plomvinsky. I was born in Warsaw of noble Polish parents. The Russian authorities arrested me as a member of a secret society and banished me to Siberia. There I remained for twenty years. Again and again the black knot cat in English cut my flesh to the bone for trying to escape. Finally I made my way to sea in an open boat and reached Alaska. The accursed Russian was there. I was seized on suspicion and sent into the interior to look for mines with several officials. Our voyage was up a great river. One night I stole the boat, which was well supplied with provisions and firearms, and sailed away up the river. After several weeks I came to the rapids where I abandoned the boat. Then I packed my provisions into the interior, keeping to the west. My intention was to make my way to Canada when I reached a small stream. Near this spot I found a small stream, the bed of which was yellow with gold. I resolved to gather a vast store, hide it, and then proceed on my way. After I had collected the gold I hid it in the cave where my bones rest then my last sickness came upon me i grew weaker day by day i realize that i am dying my last act is to write this and creep into the cave i make a solemn vow it is if a russian should find me and touch me or my gold i swear by the memory of the black knout, cat, that i will return and curse him and his children and his children's children To the man of any other nation the gold is a free gift. I sold the gold to the bank and handed a check for five thousand dollars to Simeon. Not a cent, he said. I have enough, and to spare. Then I gave him five hundred to hand to Jim. One week later I was in Toronto. It was Saturday night when I arrived. When the cab drew up at Edith's home I saw that the drawing-room was a blaze of light. Then my heart sank. I had not had a word from her since I left on the quest. I felt that she had broken her promise to me and married Fred Reingold. With a trembling hand, I rang the bell. I ignored the servant and walked in with Klondike in my arms. The next instant, Edith was in my arms. Her first words were Did you get any of the letters or telegrams? Not one. Did you see the notices in the newspapers? No. What notices? notices for you to come back father did not lose his fortune it was a mistake in the telegram from chicago the margin was on the right side and all was explained when the broker wrote father nearly recovered and is very well what of fred rheingold i stammered married six months ago to bessie Loudon. i have got the gold i said and we don't want it edith answered In our library, under a glass case, stands the skeleton hand holding the Greek testament. Now and then, I point out this hand to the new baby, whose name is Simeon. End of story two.